Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, is where we are blessed to study in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of God's Word. Somehow, I was able to stay on track, and here we are, as planned. We're going to be looking into the Gospel account, Mark's account, in verses 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 16, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, many of you have believed the doctrine of the resurrection for many years. A number of you have believed it since you were little children. And so it can be easy for truths that are long believed to kind of be taken for granted and to rest far too lightly upon the soul of the Christian. And so my goal in unfolding the truth of Mark 16, 1 through 8, together with you this morning, is to help each one of us to recapture the awe, the wonder, the sense of fear and astonishment that is fitting for us to feel in the truth that there is a man who raised himself from the dead. Now, there have been resurrections throughout Scripture Temporary resurrections where someone who had died was brought back to life, like that of Lazarus shortly before the resurrection of Jesus. But the resurrection of Jesus is unique. He wasn't just resuscitated and brought back to die again. But having died and being raised is never going to die again. Do you believe that there was a man like us who walked on this earth, who died, but who is alive today? who is at the right hand of God, a man who is never going to die again, a man who is himself the resurrection and the life. This is a truth that is so profound, it's so deep, it goes beyond human comprehension and it's something that we cannot appreciate all of the implications of, but we're going to try. We're going to keep on trying and we need to grow in our sense of wonder and fear and astonishment that this actually has happened and is the truth that we stand in today that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So let's look at verses 1 through 8. We're going to be looking at two key sets of characters. One, the women, and secondly, the angel, or as some of the other gospel writers have it, the angels. Mark just focuses on the one. Read along with me, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." That's our text for this morning. Now, Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus is very brief. 
There's many things that are recorded in Matthew's account and Luke and John that are not included here in Mark. Mark doesn't say anything about the guards that were set at the tomb and how the angel sat on the stone and all the guards became like dead men. Mark doesn't say anything about the earthquake that happened that morning. He doesn't record Peter's visit to the tomb. He doesn't talk about Mary meeting Jesus in the garden like John chapter 20 does. He doesn't say anything about the initial appearances of Jesus to the disciples in Jerusalem, nor does he record their actual meeting with him in Galilee. But Mark 16 verses 1 through 8 is very concise and very brief. And so you must imagine that what Mark did include, he included for a reason. There's so much that you could talk about here, but why these details? First, let's take a look at the women. These were the ones who were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. The women were first mentioned back in chapter 15. They were mentioned in verses 40 and 41. If you turn back a page and look at Mark 15, verse 40, in the midst of the account of Jesus' death, Mark inserts this comment that there were also women looking on from a distance. And he names three of them. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. And then these women are mentioned again at the end of the chapter, particularly two of them. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where Jesus' body was laid by Joseph of Arimathea. Now the women here are brought into the picture in chapter 15 because they are the named eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. This is the first time these women have been mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, it's just been Jesus and his disciples. And that's all that Mark's been talking about. But we find out now that these women were with him the whole time that he was in Galilee. It says in verse 41 that when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So don't think of Jesus' band of followers as just being Jesus and the twelve disciples riding up to Jerusalem as he gets the donkey and fulfills prophecy. But there were also many women that were traveling with them from Galilee. And here are three of the closest and most important of the followers of Jesus among the women of Galilee. Now, Mary Magdalene, let's talk a little bit about her first. We see that she has got a very common name. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. And that she's differentiated from the other Marys by the fact that she is from Magdala. That's what her last name means. It tells you the village that she was from. And this is a fishing village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. You remember where we started our study in Mark around the Sea of Galilee with Capernaum being the, the home base, the home of Peter and some of the other disciples. Well, not too far away on the western shore was this village of Magdala, and Mary was from there. And we find out a little bit about Mary in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, where we are told that she is one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. Normally, when Jesus was casting out a demon, it was just one. So here's a very extreme case of demonic possession. And so Mary Magdalene, having been rescued from such spiritual oppression, she became a devout follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, there's been a lot of extra-biblical tradition that has been heaped upon Mary Magdalene without any basis, with no basis in Scripture. For some reason, people think that she was a prostitute before she became a Christian. 
But there's nothing in the Bible about that. It just mentions that she had seven demons cast out of her. And what other sins in her life she may have been dealing with or repenting of, that's not something that is revealed to us in Scripture. Now, when we talk about the next Mary, as I said, it is a common name, Mary the mother of James the Younger in verse 40, and of Joseph. Now, if you go back to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, turn back to Mark 6, 3 for a moment, you'll notice there that when speaking of Jesus, they refer to him as the carpenter because his father was a carpenter and he learned his father's trade. And it says that he's the son of Mary and that Jesus is the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. So Mark has already identified Mary as being the mother not only of Jesus, but also of James and Joseph. And so when we come to Mark 15, verse 40, and we see Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, we think, well, that could be Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the names James and Joseph were also very common. And this would be a strange way, most people think, to refer to the mother of Jesus, referring to her as the mother of James and Joseph. And then, in fact, other Marys who could be identified as such. We, in fact, think that in Matthew chapter 27, when Matthew is recording the account of the women who knew where Jesus' tomb were and who discovered that it was empty, Matthew refers to her as the other Mary. And so that would be a strange way to refer to the mother of Jesus as the other Mary. And so we think that most likely this other Mary that Matthew refers to and Mark refers to here is the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the disciples of the Lord. So there were two Jameses who were disciples of Jesus, and that he also had a brother named Joseph or Joseph. Now the third woman, Salome, we learn from Matthew's gospel that she is the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. James and John were the sons of Zebedee. Here's their mother, Salome, who is one of the women who followed Jesus from Galilee and who was there at his crucifixion. And that two of these women noticed where Jesus' body was laid. They followed the body. They followed Joseph of Arimathea as he removed it from the cross and took it to the nearby garden tomb so that there can be no mistake. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. That they knew where Jesus was buried. And so when they show up there on Sunday morning, just at the break of dawn, they are certain that the empty tomb means what the young man, the angel, says that it means, that Jesus has, in fact, risen. Now, it's important when you are writing a historical document to identify who your sources are, who your witnesses are. And so the question has to be asked, why did God ordain that these women would be the ones who would be the first source, the first eyewitness of the empty tomb? It's a good question to ask because in the ancient world, particularly among the Jews and other ancient peoples, the testimony of women was not highly valued in the court of law. I'm not saying that's right. They're not getting that from the Bible. But that's what their culture held. And so it was actually somewhat of an embarrassment that the eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women. And this was something that actually plagued the early church for a number of centuries, that people would mock and make fun of the Gospels, saying, well, your testimony about the empty tomb depends upon some frantic women who discovered that the tomb was empty. Celsus was an early critic of Christianity. He wasn't an atheist, but he kind of had that same spirit of criticism towards Christianity that 
internet atheists have today. And so he really liked to point that out, that you've got you know, the testimony of women, that we can't believe your gospel accounts. But what was a felt weakness in the first several centuries of the church is actually one of the greatest strengths of the gospel accounts and the testimony of the women because what modern historians have realized is that if the disciples were making up these stories to try to recreate a movement around Jesus out of the ashes of the cross and that they were just coming up with this resurrection account in order to try to make their movement be reborn, they never would have said that it was the women who discovered the empty tomb. It wasn't something that the culture would have valued. If you were going to make up a story, you'd have the men be discovering the empty tomb. And so scholars who look into the account, and these four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are probably the most crucial texts ever written to be studied for historical importance. There's nothing that is more historically significant than whether or not the tomb was empty. That's the most important event in history. And so these four written accounts, recording eyewitnesses of that, are the most scrutinized texts out of any historical text. And as we look into it, even modern scholars who do not believe in the resurrection have to confess that yes, the tomb was empty on that Sunday morning because they never would have made up this story in this way about these frantic women finding the tomb empty that only would be written if that was the case. So even if you don't believe that Christ was raised, you have to believe that the tomb was empty because of these historical records. We see that by those who study the text and who are not Christians. They have to confess it. The tomb was empty, and these women were the first to find it empty. And you can come up with explanations for why the tomb was empty besides resurrection, but there's no doubt that the tomb was empty, and, and God has ordained it to happen this way for our sake. Because we live 2,000 years later. Peter's not here to tell me about his meeting with Christ. John's not here to tell me about his meeting with Christ. None of the eyewitnesses, the 500 who were there in Galilee at the appointed meeting, are here to tell us that we saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. What we have is the text. And the text is written in such a way that there's no way for us to escape the fact that the tomb was empty. Pretty awesome how God works providentially in history, working through Mary, the other Mary, and Salome here on that Resurrection Sunday morning. It could have happened in A.D. 30. It could have happened in A.D. 33. Those are the two years where Passover would have fallen on the right day of the week. We can follow our calendars back and find out which day of the week Passover was for each year. So Christ was either crucified in A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, and scholars who look into it are very divided as to which date they prefer. I myself am very confident that it took place on one of those two. <laughs> now, this is 2023. So when we get to 2030 or 2033, Lord willing, we're going to have a very special Easter. 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ. But it was an April morning, and it did happen. And we have the eyewitness accounts. And that's why God did it the way that he did. Now, as the women go to the tomb, they find that it is empty. But the first thing that they notice is that the stone has been rolled away. 
Now, we've discovered a number of tombs that are built like this, and they all date to the time of Jesus. It wasn't the most common tomb. It was a rich man's tomb, and so there's only a few examples. But they all date to this time, and the description in the text fits the archaeological record. Now, the large circular stone that was used in this type of tomb, the rich man's tomb, would have been much easier to close than to open. Because as they carved out the rock, they would have carved an indentation so that when you rolled it into place, it fell down into a groove. So you could roll it into the groove, but then lifting it out of that groove to roll it open would have taken a lot more work. Now, even closing it, as you see an illustration here, would have taken more than one man to do. So Joseph of Arimathea didn't do it by himself. We're told in the Gospel of John that Nicodemus was also there. These men, being wealthy and prominent, probably had a number of servants that were with them that were doing a lot of the things that are recorded. They didn't have to do it themselves in order to do it. They did it through their agents. And so the women are there. First thing, they want to show their love towards the Lord Jesus by anointing his body. They couldn't do it on the Sabbath They weren't prepared on the Friday that he was crucified. So the first opportunity they get, as soon as the Sabbath is open, they want to be there at the tomb. There's just one thing they didn't think about. And it doesn't hit them until they're on the way. Uh, Who's going to roll away the stone for us? It's six in the morning. You're not going to have a lot of guys out and about. Who are we going to get to do this? But as they're talking about it, providentially, they look up and, oh, it's already open. wonder how that happened. And so... They're approaching and they're wondering already. Already they're surprised. And they're even more surprised when they go into the tomb. Now the tomb, it would have had an antechamber, a chamber where you can walk in and stand. That first antechamber is where the angel, the young man as he is called, is seated on the right side. And then there would have been a low window where you could go and look into the actual burial chamber behind the antechamber. And so they come in and there's this young man dressed in white. And he's not just a young man. This is a description of an angel. And that's how angels are usually portrayed in scriptures as, as young men. And they're always wearing white, kind of like Jesus in his transfiguration, radiant clothing. And we know it's not just a young man because of what he says. And so let's talk about the angel's proclamation here in verses 5 through 7. They see him dressed in white, and now they are alarmed. Anytime us normal, mundane people come into contact with the supernatural, it's alarming. And these women, just like every other person in Scripture, when they meet an angel, they are startled. This is not what they were expecting We don't normally have this experience. I don't know about you, but I never have seen an angel. And if I did, it would be pretty alarming. And the first thing the angel says to them, which is the first thing that angels usually say, don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. He sees their need. He speaks comfort to them. He knows his appearance is unexpected and alarming. And he encourages and comforts them. Do not be alarmed. And then he gives his message. His message is this. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So that's the first part of his message. He tells them what they're doing. I know how you feel. Don't be alarmed. I know what you're doing. You're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. Now, there are certain facts that are established by the angel here that I think are important to note. Number one, Jesus was crucified. 
That also cannot be denied by any historian who has any objectivity and honesty. There's no doubt that Jesus was a man. Now you'll meet the atheist who says, we don't even know if Jesus was alive. That's extreme skepticism that is not based upon objective evaluation of historical facts. We know that Jesus was a man who lived. And we know that Jesus was crucified. Not only do we have the centurion and Joseph of Arimathea as witnesses here in the text, but also history tells us that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate in historical records outside of the Bible. So we've got the biblical record, but we have extra biblical records as well that are reliable that Pilate crucified a man named Jesus. Whether you believe he's the Son of God or not, we know there was a man named Jesus. We know he was crucified. We also know that no man who was crucified survived crucifixion. At least we have no account of any person surviving crucifixion. And so if it happened, we probably would have some record of it. And the Romans were experts at crucifixion. This was not a novel form of execution. They practiced it constantly, and they had 100% success with killing those who were crucified. So the swoon theory that Jesus just passed out and then came back to consciousness in the tomb, that that could account for the empty tomb, is, of course, ridiculous. So he was crucified. That's what the angel says. And that tells us that he was dead and that he was buried and that this is his tomb. And the angel says, he has risen. He is not here. Now, as I've already said, the empty tomb is a historical fact. The wrong tomb theory doesn't work. You've got the eyewitnesses here. They were the ones who followed and saw it. Thirdly, the disciples did see Jesus in Galilee. Notice what he says next, verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Galilee was the appointed meeting place for Jesus with his disciples. The other appearances of Jesus to his disciples, which are true, are historical records, are not included in Mark here, Mark's being very brief, because Mark focuses his gospel on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And Jesus chooses Galilee as the appointed place where he was going to reveal himself to his disciples. And this is most likely the meeting that is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15 when the Apostle Paul says that Christ was seen by more than 500 people at once after his resurrection, most of whom are still alive at the time that Paul was writing 1 Corinthians who would be able to verify that historical event. How do you know if something happened in history? You don't have a time machine. You can't go back and see. Most historical events are confirmed by eyewitnesses. That's why witnesses play such an important role in our judicial system. How do you know whether something really happened? You've got to have eyewitnesses. You say, well, what about videotape? Well, they didn't have videotape back then. And you know what? Videotape's not going to be very good evidence in the future either because of artificial intelligence and deepfakes. And now you can make a video of anyone saying and doing anything, and that won't be very useful in court anymore. So eyewitnesses are going to be, again, the most important way of establishing a historical fact. The credibility of the eyewitness, the number of eyewitnesses. So Jesus appointed the meeting in Galilee because it is necessary that where Jesus started with his disciples is where he restarts with his disciples. 
a new beginning with the disciples after his death, after his resurrection, in the place where he began with them. Peter goes back to fishing. And Jesus calls him once again. He says, Peter, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Feed my lambs. And so now he recommissions them after his resurrection in Galilee. It seems like the disciples were slow to believe the testimony of the women And they weren't going to just travel back up to Galilee expecting to see Jesus. And so God in his grace allowed Jesus to meet with the disciples in Jerusalem. But I bet if those disciples had heard this message and believed it and gone straightway to Galilee, there wouldn't have been need for any of the appearances of Christ in and around Jerusalem. And he would have met them at the appointed place in Galilee. I think that's a good way to think of reconstructing the appearances of Christ. And what Mark has to say here, well, what the angel has to say, that Mark is recording. The fourth thing I want to mention to you from the angel's testimony, number one, Christ was crucified. That means he was dead and buried. Number two, the tomb was empty. He wasn't there. Number three, the disciples did see him in Galilee, even though Mark doesn't record it. And number four, all of this is predicted by Jesus. Notice what the angel says there. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, he told them about the meeting in Galilee, but he also told them about his resurrection. Come with me back to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, verses 33 to 34. This is the third time that Jesus foretells his death in the gospel of Mark, and he does so with exquisite detail in verses 33 and 34. He began to tell them what was going to happen to him at the end of verse 32, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is exactly what we just read in the last few weeks with the betrayal, the handing over, the trials of Jesus. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We now might say, well, the prophecy of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Mark is not good evidence because it's all a part of the same book. And of course, Mark's going to have Jesus predict what's going to happen to him at the end of the book. I mean, that's just good storytelling. But how do we know whether that's actually historically accurate? Well, that's what the rest of the prophecy in the Bible is for. Yes, Jesus predicted it. And if you believe that Mark is giving a historical account, a historical record, as I do, well then this is a true prophecy, not just some literary feature. But if you are inclined to be skeptical of Mark's truthfulness, that's where you go back to Isaiah chapter 53. That's where you go back to Psalm 22. That's where you go back and find the prophecies in Daniel concerning the Son of Man, and you see that all of this happened according to prophetic scripture. Look also at chapter 14, verse 28. Mark 14, verse 28. I don't tell you these things because I think you don't believe it. I tell you these things because you believe it and you need to be strengthened and confirmed in your belief. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of those things that is too good to be true. And yet, it is true. And we need to be confirmed in the truth of this, that there was a man named Jesus, that he did die, that he was buried, and that he is alive today, and he is alive forevermore. And that's not just religious speak. That's not just spiritual talk. That's reality. Jesus is risen. 
So take a look at Mark 14, 28. Here's where Jesus predicted the meeting in Galilee. So the angel said, he's going to go before you to Galilee, just as he said. And so Mark records for us when he said that. Back in verse 28 of chapter 14, Jesus predicting about the striking of the shepherd and the sheep being scattered. And he says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now notice what Peter said right after that. Even though all fall away, I will not. Jesus had told Peter exactly what was going to happen. And Peter said, no, that's not the way it's going to happen, Lord, because I am confident in myself. And Peter found out that his self-confidence was overconfidence, and he was shattered. He had built his identity on his faithfulness and his love for the Lord, and when he found out that he was not faithful and he did not love the Lord, it destroyed him. And that's why the angel in chapter 16, go, tell his disciples and Peter. The angel singles out Peter because the angel knows that Peter is the most devastated. He knows that Peter is the one who is most in need of this message of hope. That Peter is the one who needs to know that an angel from God sent messengers to him to tell him that everything Jesus said is true. Not just the things he said about you failing him. That was true, Peter. But also, what else did he tell you? That he was going to rise from the dead and that he was going to meet you in Galilee. So get up and go meet Jesus in Galilee. Now we're told in the other Gospels that when the women told these things to the disciples, the disciples thought it sounded like nonsense. You're just a bunch of frantic women. That's what they thought. They didn't remember. They didn't believe. Not just the promises of God in the Old Testament, but the prophecies of Jesus himself, which he repeatedly told them. The women and the disciples, on Friday night, were at the lowest place that a soul can be. They had put their hope upon Jesus, and their hope was dead. These women showing up to the tomb on Sunday morning are broken. Yeah, they're loving Jesus, they're showing their love, but they think he's dead. Their hope, their Lord, their faith, dead. And to go from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs is pretty difficult. There's some whiplash of the soul that is taking place here for the women and for the disciples. And they're slow to believe. And these women, they see the angel, they see the empty tomb, and they're just bewildered. They flee from the tomb. Trembling and astonishment sees them. They have this mental whiplash as their soul is trembling and their body trembles along with their soul. And they think, is it possible? Could it be our hope isn't dead? That our faith isn't in vain? That there really is life in Jesus? Mark wants us to, to sit here and to experience the astonishment of those first eyewitnesses. Now, when Mark says that they said nothing to anyone, we shouldn't think that what he means to say is that they disobeyed the angel's command and they didn't go tell the disciples. That's not the right way of reading it. Number one, because the other Gospels make it clear that they did go tell the other disciples. 
What does it mean then when he says, they said nothing to anyone? Well, go back to Mark chapter 1. Let's start back at the beginning. Mark likes to do what I try to teach my students to do. When you're giving a speech, your conclusion should tie into your introduction. So let's tie the conclusion of Mark into the introduction. We already began to do so last week when we saw, Good Friday, that the centurion standing by the cross confessed when he saw the way that Jesus died, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And that's how the gospel begins in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then God confesses it in verse 11. A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So Mark confesses it and heaven confesses it, but a man doesn't confess it until Good Friday, Mark chapter 15. But then, notice what happens at the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. There's a man who's at his lowest point, a leper, the worst station you can have in society. And God cleanses him and takes him from that low point to the highest point. Jesus, in verse 41, moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And this was too good to be true. I mean, for this man to be cleansed of his leprosy like this. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. The exact same words given in command form. In chapter 16, it's a narrative form. They said nothing to anyone. But here, same root words. Say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Now, are you supposed to read that and say, well, he probably disobeyed Jesus and he didn't go show himself to the priest because he was obeying the part where he said, say nothing to anyone. And that means if he goes to the priest, he has to to mime, you know. I was a leper. I was cleansed. Uh, No, that's not how you're supposed to read it. When Mark says he went and said nothing to anyone, he means on the way to do what Jesus told him to do, he didn't say anything to anyone. That's because of the urgency of the message. This is the most important thing for you to do. Don't stop with family and friends and tell them, look what Jesus did. You go straight to the priest. And so now at the end of the book, the angel with a message from God says to the women, don't say anything to anyone, but you go with urgency. Don't stop and tell others. Go straight to the disciples and tell them this message. And that's what they did. And they did so with fear and trembling in their hearts. Now, when we hear fear and trembling and fleeing from the tomb, we think that this is all bad, this is all a negative response. Well, no. Fear and trembling in the Bible is not always a bad, negative thing. But in the Gospel of Matthew, when it records the women fleeing from the tomb, it talks about how they were trembling and rejoicing. Okay? So they came to the tomb with heavy hearts in the lowest point. They're leaving the tomb trembling with fear and joy. Don't think that they're not joyful about the empty tomb. Don't think that they're not joyful to hear that he is risen. Don't think that they're not joyful to hear that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee and they're going to see him again. It just takes some time for this to sink in. And they're astonished. They're overwhelmed. 
That's what Mark is trying to convey. And that's what we're supposed to feel as we go to the text and we think about the resurrection of Jesus. Here's something that's too good to be true. That you're going to see Jesus. That you have a meeting with him, the resurrected one. And that when he comes, you're going to be resurrected. Your whole outlook on life is transformed and changed by that fact. Your relationship to sickness and death is transformed by that fact. Your relationship to sin and relationship to God is transformed by that fact. The resurrection changes everything and it should leave us in awe, in wonder, in astonishment. This is not a, oh yeah, I heard about this in Sunday school type of idea. This is a, whoa, type of idea. And let's not lose that. Let's pray that God will continually, day by day, not just on Resurrection Sunday, but throughout the year, transform our understanding of our relationship to evil, our relationship to God, our relationship to death, our relationship to life, through this one fact. If the resurrection is true, it's the most important fact of history. If it's not true, well, that's pretty important too. The resurrection changes these women, and it changes us.